The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as for Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we are going to be talking about Eastern European research, and my guest is Lisa Alzo. Uh, I met Lisa a, a couple of years ago, I think at one of the conferences, and she lives in New York, so uh, we have gotten together a couple of times for lunch and dinner, and I knew she was a specialist in Eastern European research, uh, and so I invited her to come on to the show, and I'm so excited uh, that, that she's joining us, uh, because today we're going to be uh, finding out about Eastern European history, just very briefly. She's going to tell us a little bit about who these Eastern Europeans are and a little bit about their history. And then she's going to be talking about uh, how to go about researching them. And this is particularly interesting to me because I am one quarter Bohemian and I have neglected my Bohemians in my research. Uh, so uh, she's written a book uh, which is called uh, The Family Tree, uh, Polish, Czech and Slovak Genealogy Guide. So she's going to be talking about her book and what we can find in the book, uh, which is really interesting. And she's also going to be talking about some of her writing projects and about a writing intensive course that she offers online. So we've got a lot going on today, uh, focusing on Eastern European research. So Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited for you to be here too. I'm I'm really looking forward to finding out about uh how to go about uh researching my bohemians. Um so let's start the show as I normally do asking you where you were born, where you were raised, your education and your careers. Well, I was uh born and raised in Pittsburgh in a small town called Duquesne. It was a steel town. My uh, grandfathers were immigrants, and they they were steel workers. And uh, so I grew I grew up in Pittsburgh and uh, lived there most of my life. Uh, but the last uh, twenty or so years, I've been living in Ithaca, New York. And then, how about your education? You got a, a lot of interesting things. Well, I actually didn't start out as a genealogist. Um, I have a Master's of Fine Arts degree in nonfiction writing, which I earned from the University of Pittsburgh. And that's actually how I got started in genealogy, because I needed a topic for my thesis. And at the time, uh, I was just kind of learning about my uh immigrant ancestors, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that because uh, my ancestors were Slovak and, and Carpathian Rus, and that's my ancestry. And so I, I started asking questions. Um, all my grandparents were deceased at the time, but I was asking my, my mother questions, and uh, I needed a topic for my thesis, so I was reading a book called uh, Out of This 
Furnace by Thomas Bell, B-E-L-L. It was a novel uh, that he published based on his Slovak family. And I got interested in that, and, and I decided that I wanted to write sort of the female version of that book, but as a nonfiction book, uh, because that book was uh, male-centered. Uh, but I wanted to – I was fascinated with my maternal grandmother, and I knew her until I was in college, but I never asked her any questions about her life, and I really wanted to explore – uh, the Slovak immigrant woman. So that's that's how I got started uh, in genealogy, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. And you have a book based on your thesis. That is correct. It's called Three Slovak Women, and you can find that on Amazon.com. And, yes, I turned my thesis into a nonfiction book. And, uh, it, you know, it's just something that I'm very proud of because I got to tell my grandmother's story and, and my mother's story as a first-generation American. All right. All right. And then after you got your uh, Master of Fine Arts, wh- what did you do career-wise? Well, that's interesting. I, uh, I've i had uh, many different jobs. I Right out of college, actually in college, I was a nutrition major. I have a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition, and uh, I took a second major in English, but writing was always my love. And after college, I worked for a while at Macmillan Publishers in New York City for a nursing and nutrition editor. And then after that, I worked at different publishing houses around New Jersey and then worked in newspaper for a while writing feature articles uh, in, in New Jersey and then uh, moved back to Pittsburgh obtained my degree, and I I worked at the University of Pittsburgh to put myself through graduate school. So I worked, uh, you know, different secretarial and administrative jobs there, uh, both at at Pitt and in the medical center there. And then I moved to Ithaca, New York, and worked uh, for uh, many years at Cornell University. Uh, The the last job I I held there was uh, working on a chemistry uh, journal, And then uh, in 2012, I decided to do the writing, speaking, and uh, genealogy field full-time. And so I've been doing that full-time since April 2012. Okay. So your focus is writing and uh, and speaking rather than actually doing uh, genealogy research for other people. Is that correct? That is correct. I, I take limited projects, uh, mostly helping people with their Slovak ancestry, because that's what I I do most of. But I don't take clients for hire as a rule. I I really enjoy educating people on how to do the research uh, on their own. And so I really find it fulfilling uh, to write the articles, to write the books. Uh, I develop classes for, for online programs. And, uh, of course, I do the in-person speaking and also webinars. And that's what I really enjoy doing is, is the education part. Okay. And then I, I think on, I saw on your website, do you write books or, or family histories for other people? I've had a few projects here and there that I've worked on. I, I, I don't do that as a rule, but if it's something that really – interests me and I can help somebody, then, then I will do that. 
most you know most of my writing is is for publications and how to books i I just find uh, I find that, that that is where my strengths are and and I, I I do as I said I I will occasionally work on projects for other people but I I don't necessarily do that I I, I really enjoy coaching people on how to write their own family histories so that's that's what I prefer to do but I have you know I I do have uh, you know some experience writing for for other folks. Okay. All right. So at the end of the show, we're going to find out how, uh, or where you're offering your courses, uh, and and talk more about that. So let's let's get into the Eastern European uh, research. So obviously you are you're Eastern European, um, and who is considered to be Eastern European? What nationalities and ethnic groups? Well, it's it's broad, and of course you have to. <laughs> go back and it, this ties into the research process because geographically, politically, and ethnically, uh, Eastern Europe, Europe and Central Europe is, you know, it's really a hodgepodge. And so uh, you know, you'll have, you know, uh, the you know, Czechs, Bohemians like yourself, Slovaks, Hungarians, and then, you know, Polish, and, uh, you know, and then you have uh, – Ukrainian, Russian, so there's it really it really spans the gamut. And even though, for example, my ancestry is Slovak, and that's really technically Central Europe, uh, sort of the broad brush is under you know Eastern European genealogy. So you have you know you have quite uh, quite a lot of different ethnic groups, but you also have there's you know, political and geographical considerations too. So that's one of the things that that makes Eastern European Eastern European research interesting and challenging at the same time. Okay. So who are some of the uh, more obscure groups? I'm, and I use the word obscure that they're they're not like the the Czech Bohemians or the Slovaks. You know those those I think most of my listeners have heard of. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned Carpatho-Rusin uh, at the beginning, that you are, are partly that group. And, and I know Moravians uh, came from what's now uh, the Czech Republic. Who are, who are some of these other more obscure groups? That, that's correct. So Carpatho-Rusin is my, you know, part of my ancestry. And I didn't even know I was Carpatho-Rusin until I really started, you know, researching it was probably about 1994 when I became acquainted with a, a group in Pittsburgh, the Carpatho Rusin Society. And I, uh, you know, I learned, uh, you know, through uh, research that, that where my, especially where my maternal grandfather came from, uh, a village called Osternia, which is near the Polish border. And it's uh, in the Carpathian mountain region. And it's this, this area uh, you know, through Eastern Slovakia and Rusins have, you know, a distinct language, a distinct dialect. Uh, typically they tend to be Greek Catholic faith as opposed to Roman Catholic faith. And there are other uh, characteristics, but as I, I did the research um, and, and the thing is, is the Carpatho Rusins never had their own, uh, their own uh, country, their own identity. Uh, so, uh, one of the most famous Carpatho Rusins is Andy Warhol, 
And, uh, you know, the Slovaks, the Ukrainians, the Rusins, they all fight over Andy Warhol, but he was of Rusin descent. His village was from this area. And, uh, he, you know, he's famous for saying, I come from nowhere. And that was that was pretty accurate uh, because the Rusins really didn't have their own land. And they, they tend to get lumped in ethnically, uh, you know, with other groups. But there was an, an awakening that, that came about. Uh, and so the Carpatho Rusin Society formed, and and their uh, main uh, they have a, a cultural center in in Pittsburgh, uh, in in Munhall, Pennsylvania. And so they, you know, I, I learned a lot about my Rusin ancestry by joining the Carpatho Rusin Society. Uh, but yeah, other groups, of course, Moravians. Uh, you know, you have a lot of the uh, the, the smaller smaller countries, uh, you know, such as Moldova, and you have. Uh, you know other other groups like Volhynians and and just in in these smaller regions that that kind of get swallowed up by the the bigger countries. But there there are many different uh, you know different groups that that can be researched and people find you know that their ancestry falls you know within those those particular groups. So as I said, it's it's a massive uh, massive uh, area to to research. But there are all, there are these different these different groups that may be not as as obvious as the you know Bohemians or the Hungarians or Polish or some of the other bigger groups that people research. And that, from my perspective, that that confuses a lot of, of Eastern European research. Um, so one more question about the Carpatho Rusins. Am I remembering correctly that Megan Smolenyak is also, I, I interviewed her a couple of times early on in, in my blog talk career, and I'm vaguely remembering that, that she is also, is that correct? Yes. Yes, that is correct. In fact, Megan was the very first uh, genealogist that I met, and we we actually did a research trip together because our ancestors came from the same village. Uh, uh, my grandfather came from Austernia, and her ancestors did too. And uh, and so we we uh, did a research trip to Barton, Ohio, which was uh, a a place where a lot of immigrants from Austernia settled. And this was back in the you know the early '90s, and uh, in fact, uh, uh, Megan's husband is actually a, a cousin of mine. So it's um, <laughs> yeah, it's a small world. And yes, we yes yes, she is of Carpatho Rusin, and she, in fact, she was the one that took me to the Carpatho Rusin Society meeting. So uh, in, you know, in a way, we've you know we've we've kind of researched our Rusin ancestors, you know, together. Okay. All right. So we've got all of these people uh, in in Eastern and and parts of Central uh, Europe. How are they different culturally, language, religion, or or are they uh, that different? There are a lot of similarities. Uh, Culturally, you'll find a lot of the similar foods, for example, maybe may just a little bit differently depending on whether you're in Poland or Czech Republic or Slovakia. Uh, the languages, you know, they vary depending on which area uh, that you come from. Uh, but a, a lot of the languages have similarities and differences. Uh, you know, there are nuances. And there, of course, then there are regional dialects 
as well within you know each country. So uh, it, it does you know it, it does uh, differ depending on you know where you're researching, but you know it tends to be that 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 the groups all get lumped into sort of this this Slavic category, and so you 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 can really spend a lot of time sorting out the, the, the nuances, but yeah, uh, you know, it just depends on the country that you're researching, what languages, is, you know, some of them are different than others, and you know, uh, you know, the alphabets are different and so forth. So as you start studying it, you, you learn uh, the nuances that you need to know. But yeah, you'll, you'll find that a lot of the, you know, the dress, the, the, the dances, the music, the, the food tends to be similar, but with enough differences to make them ethnically unique. Okay. And then how about religion? Are are most of these people Catholic? It depends. Again, uh, you'll find uh, Roman Catholic. Of course, that was the dominant religion of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But then you will have uh, Russian Orthodox. You will have uh, you know, the, the Greek Catholic, or you know, as we know it here, you know, Byzantine in, in the United States. Or you will have Lutherans. Uh, you will have, of course, uh, Jewish. But that's a that's another sort of individual category of Eastern European research. But you'll have, uh, and then you'll, of course, you'll have the free thinkers. You know, the, the Bohemians. Uh, you have uh, Unitarians. You have a lot of different religions that you will see in, in the various countries. Uh, for my own personal ancestors, uh, my research has been mostly in either Greek Catholic records or Roman Catholic records. Okay. And when you say free thinkers for the Bohemians, do you mean atheists? Is that something that I learned early on, that many Bohemians were atheists or are atheists? Right, right. And they had their own way of you know, expressing their their thoughts and their beliefs. And so, again, to the history, when you learn the history of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church, it, it, so there, there were all sorts of reformations and uprisings and things going on throughout the history. And so uh, that's, that, that's why you'll find a lot of the, uh, the, the, the Czech or the Bohemians have this, you know, free thinking idea. So again, it, it you you study the history and you learn a lot of different things. Okay. And so when we're talking about Eastern European research today, are we including Jewish research in this, or are we we excluding? Because as you said, it's it's a very unique, uh, uh, different type of of research. I wouldn't say we would exclude it because, of course, it's you know uh, there that 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 is a big you know, group to research in Eastern Europe. I think that that there, that there are a lot of uh, a lot of uh, u- unique aspects of the research in terms of you know the languages and the calendars and and just just the the you know availability of records and where you're looking. And so I tend to I. I Jewish research is not one of my specialties, uh, but, uh, you know, it's certainly, you know, there, there are certainly uh, quite a few, uh, you know, genealogists who specialize in that, and there, there are a lot of uh, 
groups and and especially if you're you know going on Facebook or on social media or uh, you know the JewishGen.org uh, is a wonderful website w- which you know is dedicated to researching uh, Jewish ancestors. So I you know you you definitely have to include it. Uh, but again, it's you know the, the records maybe maybe. Uh, harder to find or in different places depending on you know where you're looking so again it goes it all goes back to learning the time period in the history and what was going on and and how the record groups are are organized so um you know it it's 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 not um you know kind of a clear cut process but but yes you would you would include certainly people uh, that are searching for Jewish ancestors in Eastern Europe, uh, but I think there are there are, there are researchers out there far more qualified than myself to to uh, discuss that aspect of of Eastern European research. All right, so then we can say in general today we're we're talking uh, in in our uh, talking about Eastern European research. We are including uh, Jewish research as well, generally. But it also is going to take probably another show for me to focus on Jewish Eastern European research because there are some some unique differences with that. Is that fair to say? Uh, I would say yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. So go ahead. No, that's fine. Go ahead. Okay. So then let's let's just in a nutshell. um, Take just a few minutes. And I know this is it's. I'm asking uh, a lot because the the history is so rich. And I, I took a, uh, when I was in college at the University of Michigan, took a, a, an entire uh, course on Eastern Europeans. Um, so in general, you know, a history of, of the people that we're looking at today, you know, are, are they associated with the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, you know, just just in general, just, so we have a kind of a little bit of a sense. Yes, well, you you had the three major empires. Of course, if you go way way back, you have the Ottomans and the Turks, and you have, you know, a, a really really deep history. But when we're talking for, you know, most of most of us that are tracing our ancestors back. Uh, you know, we're looking at, you know, the three empires sort of that shaped Eastern Europe, which would be the Austrian Empire, you know, the Russian Empire, and the German Empire. And then um, especially if you're doing Polish research, for example, you need to know, you know, the three partitions of Poland that took place, you know, during, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the 1700s and, you know, 1800s and so forth. And so you need to know, you know, who who was in charge when, and that, you know, that's where it gets a little, little tricky. Um, of course, so for my, and then for my ancestors, when I'm looking at, at Slovak research, Slovakia was controlled by Hungary, which was, you know, one half of the dual monarchy. And that happened up until 1918. Well, of course that 1918 was the end of world war one. And then you had the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so then you had all of the the countries, you know, forming that. So then, then, uh, you know, what you would know as you know Bohemia and Moravia, and then, then that area became, you know, now we know that as 
the Czech Republic, but of course then they merged with Slovakia after World War One, and you had Czechoslovakia. So my grandparents' records will change when I look at them depending on when they came. So I would see, you know, Austria or Hungary or Slovakia, or I would see Czechoslovakia. So again, you have to know when the, when all of this changed. And then of course you had then, uh, you know, more borders being redrawn as a result of, you know, the second world war and, and a lot of the displaced persons. And so you just, you just have, quite a a challenge to sort of sort out the time period and the history. But yes, we're talking, you know, the the, the three big empires, of course, were the Russian Empire, the the German and the Austrian Empire. Okay, so so we need to know our our history and, and be able to, as we do anywhere we're researching, we need to know what the boundaries are and who's in control. That is correct. Yes, definitely. And, and they change so many times you know, throughout, you know, not only through the big events, but also internally. Uh, you know, there were a lot of internal conflicts going on in individual countries and, and things happening administratively and so forth. And so you really do need to have some really you know, good resources, some, some good history books and and some good historic maps and, and so forth to help you sort out uh, the time period and the geography. Okay. And, and how about Napoleon? Uh, I, as I remember, the farthest he reached was Russia. Uh, so did he have an influence on our people? Well, definitely he did, uh, especially with, with the um, instituting of, you know, how records were kept, uh, you know, according to, you know, something called the Napoleonic Code, uh, you know, and, and so the, the, the standard format that we see in some of the records, uh, you know, with the, the, the columns and, and so forth um, happened, you know, as a result of, of his uh, desire to keep, you know, to institute record keeping and so forth. So, uh, you know, yeah, there's, you know, there, there's, there's a lot to, to learn about, uh, that whole time period as well, and so but mostly you know you know there was definitely an influence um, you know, uh, because of of his far reaching uh, you know uh, conquering and so forth so you know you do you do have to to go back you know, to those to those time periods and and study. Uh, you know what the the results were for for each particular area that you're you're studying. Okay, all right. And then uh, our last uh, question about uh, the history. Again, in general, uh, we're I'm thinking about migrations and people being displaced because of war and and all of that. You know, is is there just something in general that we can keep in mind? about these people in, in terms of migrations? And, and were there some who just, for centuries? Lisa? Hello? Hi, Lisa, can you hear me? Uh, yes. Okay. Did you hear my last question about migrations? Uh, yes, I did. Yes. So, okay. Uh, yes. So, 
again, we tend to think that you know, our ancestors stayed in one place. <laughs> but in in some cases, that's true. You have, you know, you have, you know, deep history and, and, and for generations. But you also, as you said, have displaced persons. And, and sometimes, you know, just as, you know, we find ourselves migrating for jobs or uh, family reasons or, you know, because of wars or military reasons, you know, we – we have to keep in mind our ancestors may have ended up in places we might not expect. And again, we, you know, you would, you also find, uh, for example, you know, uh, you'll find a lot of Polish people going to uh, Brazil or Argentina, or you'll find uh, same thing. Uh, I had a, uh, a great uncle, my grandmother's brother ended up in Argentina and, so uh, you, you you know you have to keep an open mind when you're when you're doing your research that sometimes things aren't as obvious as, as they seem and even though you know there are long histories of of villages you know existing and people being there for many many generations you do have uh, you did have people coming in uh, to different places for different reasons so again it's 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 a little more complicated because of all the border shifting and changes, but, but there are, there are, you know, resources and so forth that you can check for, um, you know, for, for, for different uh, migration patterns and histories and so forth. Okay. Okay. All right. So uh, on that note, we are going to take a break. This is the forget me not hour. Your ancestors want their and We will be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on uh, Blog Talk Radio, uh, you uh, can access the archives for the last six years of the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Uh, Please take advantage of those shows. Many of them are timeless. Actually, I would say most of them are timeless. Uh, So they will give you uh, some wonderful uh, tips on historical context and research for your ancestors. Uh, Also, uh, share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family. You'll see a button on the Blog Talk page. Uh, Share that on social media. You'll also see a follow button. Uh, If you press that, you'll uh, get an email letting you know that the show is going on the air and who the guest is and and what the topic is. And then finally, uh, you can get the Forget-Me-Not Hour on the go uh, via iTunes. Uh, You can find it under Jane E. Wilcox. Uh, So you can take the Forget-Me-Not Hour wherever you go. So today we are talking about Eastern European research, and my guest is Lisa Alzo. Uh, so, Lisa, uh, um, I'm thinking about our people in Eastern Europe and and Central Europe, and and the lives that they had. When I'm I'm asking this question, so um, I'm very familiar with the history of my English ancestors. Uh, I've done research on them in the 1600s, 1500s. Most of them rented they were tenants on manors it's called copyhold is this the same uh situation for most of our eastern european ancestors are they tenants are they serfs yes and again uh it wasn't until uh you know there there were different periods of time in different areas when you know serfdom was abolished and uh you know different different specific dates, but yes, for the most part, for example, my ancestors were, were peasant farmers were, you know, they worked for the, the lords, the manors, and, and they, you know, and it wasn't, in, in, you know, in, until, again, until after, you know, the, the you know, World War One and so forth that, that things, you know, changed, but, but I still have, uh, there's still a plot of land, uh, for example, in my Alzo family that you know that they still own, and it was all, uh, you know, originally part of uh, the, the the bigger manor uh, for the Hungarian uh, nobles that they worked for. But uh, you know, eventually they were able to uh, earn enough or make enough money and 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 buy part of that land. And so, uh, yes, you will find that that is very common, um, you know, throughout throughout Eastern Europe. Okay. And then and jumping ahead to the types of records that we may find in, in Europe to uh, research our ancestors, are these manorial records available for researchers? Yes, and it depends on the, the area. Again, uh, you'll find uh, you know, some places have, have better collections of records than others, and uh, and, and again, it depends on um, you know where they're kept. Are they are they kept in the you know the regional archives, the local archives, the state archives? Uh, and again, the information found in there uh, again, peasants tend to be let listed more as property, so you wouldn't find an enormous amount of personal details, but you would be able to. You know, place somebody you know on a particular estate if the records still exist, uh, and then uh, you know if you're if you happen to 
be descended from, you know, um, the nobility, then there are uh, some records that that you can access. Uh, for example, Family Search, the Family History Library, has uh, some nobility records for for certain areas that you can that you can uh, research there. But again, it's it, it really depends on where you're researching and you know, did did these records survive? Have they been preserved? So uh, again, if you're doing particular land research, uh, my my advice is if you're trying to find something specific. Uh, I know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, researchers that I deal with that are based in Eastern Europe professionals. They do a lot of uh, air research and land research for you know descendants where there you know there are you know properties that that need to be attended to and so forth. Uh, so I it does exist in certain areas, but again, uh, my my advice is if you're an average genealogist over here in the United States, uh, it's always better to consult with a, a professional who has expertise in that area in the particular country or, or area that you're researching. Okay. Okay. So before we, we talk about your book and the, and the researching our Eastern Europeans, in general, when most of our people come uh, to the United States, what, what uh, decades, centuries are we looking at? Well, you have you have some early, you know, early immigrants. You know, there's some some early records of you know, Polish immigrants coming over and and establishing settlements. Uh, but most of the time, you'll you'll find 1800s uh, and onward. And 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 then the period of mass migration, of course, was. Uh, from the 1880s up until 1914, you know, at the start of World War One, and so that's when a lot of of immigrants uh, would would arrive uh, from Eastern Europe. And so again, you'll find some some earlier, you know, Moravians and, and Bohemians and 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 Polish coming, uh, some in the 1600s, some in the 1700s and early 1800s. But then you'll you'll see other immigrants, you know, uh, for example, my Slovak ancestors or, you know, Hungarians and, and, and other groups coming, as I said, starting really in force about 1880 up and through, you know, the First World War. And then you have another wave that that would come, you know, after the you know Second World War. So you have you have some different time periods uh, to to research, but but in general. That you know that 1880s through 1914 you know covers covers a great deal of immigrants. Okay, okay. So then let's talk about the research. Uh, as I mentioned, you have a book, uh, Polish, Czech, and Slovak Genealogy Guide. Uh, I uh, skimmed through it before the, uh, the show today, uh, and. It's, it was an eye-opener, uh, and one of the, the reasons I have neglected my bohemians is just, I'm not as familiar, obviously, with uh, the area. Um, my focus has been on my English ancestors and going back to England. Um, and then the language. Uh, it's it's an entirely, for at least for the bohemians, the Czech Republic, it's an entirely different alphabet. It's uh, Cyrillic. Uh, and so, so Lisa's book, as I said, was an eye opener. It's like, oh, th you know, this research 
can be done. <laughs> so, so let's talk about the book. What have you included in the book? Well, the book is, is mainly designed for the beginner in mind, but even if you've been you know, dabbling in the research, uh, I think you would find it useful. Uh, we we focused on you know Polish, Czech, and Slovak because those were sort of the the bigger groups that that we that we thought would you know would benefit from this type of group uh, book. But it it does you know some of the principles will apply to no matter which uh, ethnic group you're researching. But we we started from the beginning. So the the two most important things when you're researching is the immigrant's original name because uh, your your ancestor likely did not have the same name that they use in America uh, and you know names were not magically changed at Ellis Island as we we have all learned but generally when the you know the immigrants would apply for naturalization or settle into you know American life uh, but then you know so for example my grandfather is not you know John in records. He could be Janusz in Hungarian. He could be Johannes. He could be Jan. And so you have to know the different names. And same thing with the last names. You have to get the original name, the spellings. And, and Eastern European names can be very difficult to spell and pronounce. Uh, also, the most important piece of information is the name of the ancestral town or village. And generally, uh, our ancestors will come from smaller towns or villages, but they might put a bigger town of reference in some of their paperwork. So, for example, when people ask me, you ask me, you know, where did you grow up? And if I say Duquesne, Pennsylvania, not an enormous amount of people would know where exactly that is. But if I say Pittsburgh, they would be able to pinpoint that. And so, uh, that's you know that's the problem is identifying that ancestral town or village because you have to drill down to the local level to you know find the church records and find the other the civil registration records. So those are the two most important pieces of information that you need. So in the book we cover first how to discover the uh, original names and the ancestral villages, and then we go on to talk briefly about the history, briefly about the geography of each country, and then uh, the rest of the book is accessing records uh, over, uh, over in Poland, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, and using family search to get some of the records and uh, going uh, how to contact you know, civil registration offices, how to find uh, other databases that may exist for uh, certain record sets in certain areas. Okay. And then I also want to mention you have some case studies, too, at the back. Uh, so how, how to apply all of this. Yes. Yes, I had three uh, really good case studies of three of my uh, friends, colleagues, who agreed to contribute them. And, and they're each a little bit different. Uh, there's one about Polish uh, name changes. <laughs> and there's one about uh, researching a Czech ancestor and then there's one about a Slovak ancestor, but also incorporating uh, DNA testing and uh, how the uh, person has, has researched his ancestry and started to use DNA as well as another tool. Okay. All right. So it, I'm thinking about 
you're saying about the name changes, um, that was handed down to me orally. And I'm, so I'm thinking about my, my ancestors right now. So, so uh, one was Swoboda, which I understand is like Jones or, or Johnson in the mm-hmm. Czech Republic. Um, and the other is Lamach, and, and that's the name that they came with, L-A-M-A-C. And it was changed to Lamac. Uh, and so I knew that that changed. So I've got the, the names. But what was interesting is that uh, my grandmother, who uh, she was a genealogist, and she married my grandfather, who is the Bohemian. Uh, so that's where my one quarter Bohemian comes from. So when they were, uh, uh, you know, a, a few decades after they were married, they went to visit my grandfather's grandfather's brother who had come from Bohemia as well as, as the grandfather. So we had the grandfather and his brother. So the, the grandfather's brother was still alive, and my grandmother asked come from. And so this is 1950, and she's writing this down in her notes. Um, and then Czech records were not available to the pu- public. Uh, they were not microfilmed, and so really no research could be done. So I picked up the ball and I went to find these places on historic maps uh, from the, they came in 1870. And so I was looking for them at the Golda Meir uh, Library at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, which has wonderful historic maps. And I was able to find a, a couple of these, these places on the map, but there was one that I could not find at all. And, and she had written down what looked like Schlimmstadt, which, which I thought might, might be a German name, could not find it at all. And eventually what, what I figured out is that she misheard what the, the great uncle had said. And it actually was the uh, town called Libstadt. And I was able to find that exactly in the middle of all uh, these other couple of places. So I was fortunate that my grandmother talked with the man who came from Bohemia. Now, how successful are we going to be? This was a lead up to this question. How successful are we going to be in finding our ancestors' places of origin in Eastern Europe? Well, the the answer to that is it depends. And so, uh, you know, as as anybody approaches genealogy, we we start with what we do have. So, if you are fortunate to have any documents from your ancestors, anything, you start scouring those for any clues. Uh, it may be that you don't have any. You know, everybody's deceased, and that's where your networking comes in and starting to reach out to cousins and 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 finding people that may or may have come from the same villages and and we cover that in the book as well uh, you know you know doing your you know cluster and collateral research and trying to uh, you know determine you know in general a lot of times when our ancestors came to the United States they tend to settle in the regions where you know fellow countrymen and women settled uh, people from the neighborhoods you know they would they would flock you know where the jobs were and so forth so when you you start studying the the immigration patterns and you start then trying to see who was connected then you might be able to if you don't have that information the exact village maybe you can you know find somebody who came on the same ship or you know 
was a witness, a sponsor at a baptism, so forth, a naturalization sponsor, et cetera. So you kind of expand your research. But, you know, you, you start with home. If you don't have anything, you try to reach out and maybe find cousins that, that do. And, you know, thankfully with the Internet and social media now and, you know, even get joining these DNA studies, you can connect with people like never before. And so I think that's a big part of the research process. And then, you know, you need to scour every record you can possibly find on this side of the ocean for your immigrant ancestor. So everything, I mean, you you need to, you know, delve into court records, work records, military records, pensions, you know, church records, vital records, fraternal organization records. A lot of our immigrant ancestors belong to these benefit societies. And if you can find an application, perhaps that will list the exact village. So once you, you know, once you get that information and then you would do like you did and and verify the place. So you have to go to these historic maps and gazetteers, which are geographical dictionaries that tell you more specific things about a place. So, uh, you know, was it near a river? Uh, what was the, you know, the terrain? Like how many churches were in a particular village? What was the, the, the faith of the, you know, what, what faiths were being practiced? What churches were there? What was the predominant church in that area? So you, you can look at, use these tools, and a lot of them are available through Family Search to kind of narrow down the places. And so that's, that's, you know, that's my best advice. So, you know, your success is going to depend on, you know, how much digging you're willing to do. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, the internet is a good and a bad thing. Genealogists coming to genealogy today have a lot more advantages than when I started 26 years ago, uh, because they, there are some wonderful online records, but then, we tend to think that everything is online and we're going to find all of our answers only by putting some names into a database. And you really have to, sometimes you have to do a lot of digging to get that place of origin. Okay. All right. So when we're researching our, our ancestors uh, in, you know, we, we find that place of origin in Europe, what types of records are we going to find over there that will help us research our ancestors? Well, of course, the the the, the two uh, you know big categories. So, and again, it depends on where you're looking and what you know when the requirements were for these records to to be turned over to the government. But generally, church records are the the thing that you're going to go for. So, you're looking for the baptisms, the marriages, and the the burials you know, the death records, uh, and then in, in different periods of time, which we go into in the book of, on vital records, uh, the, 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 again, going back to the history, the churches were re- required to turn over their records to, uh, you know, the government, so, and then there, there, there would be also a civil registration of a birth, marriage, and death. So, again, just like if your ancestors are married in a church here, you you know, would you could go to the church and, and see that record. But there would also, depending on when the state instituted, you know, state required vital records, then you might find a, you know, state civil application for marriage. So it's it kind of applies the same, but it 
it, it can be a little bit more tricky depending on um, the, the particular area that you're researching. But those are the two main groups. And, of course, you also have other records. Uh, again, availability will depend on the location. But, again, there are, for example, uh, Austrian military records that you can find. Uh, you know, there, there are different requirements to find those, but you can – in some instances, find maybe military records. Uh, you can find the land and manor records. You can find there, and and again, different countries, different areas kept censuses at different periods of time. So, for example, there's an 1869 Hungarian census that is quite useful that will give the household members, and you will and and you can see you know their religion and who lived in a particular house in the house number and so forth. Uh, there are check censuses. There are, uh, you know, revision lists and tax lists, depending on, you know, which area you're looking at. So, again, there are, we, we kind of, you can, you can extend what you would normally look for in a, if you're, you know, researching records in the United States, but you just have to be aware of that the availability and the access uh, can can greatly differ depending on which country you're researching. Okay. All right. So then in general, where are we going to find these records? You mentioned the Family History Library. Right. So the fam so Genealogical Society of Utah has been, you know, microfilming. They, they were microfilming records in, in Central and Eastern Europe for a long time. So, uh, for example, even back when I started in the 90s, I was able to find church records up until 1895 because that was sort of the, that was the start of the civil registration. But I was able to find microfilm records for my, you know, grandparents' villages, so the churches that, that, that they were baptized and married in and so forth. But uh, then now, of course, uh, FamilySearch is bringing a lot of these collections online. They're digitizing, and they're expanding their their reach now. So they're, they, for example, have brought a lot of check records where they have partnerships with archives, and they've gone in and digitized. And and and, and their their Hungarian collection is is excellent as well. They're bringing a lot of uh, civil records from Hungary online. So uh, again, it's it's. It's starting to to become uh, easier to find some records in the family search, either through the catalog, still through the microfilm, or through their digital collections, and they update them constantly, which is a good thing. Uh, some of the other countries, maybe not so much. I mean, you know, uh, they're they're slower for 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 coming online, and again, this is all depending on the, the contracts that FamilySearch gets. Now, some places are starting to bring their own records online. So, for example, uh, Latvia and Estonia have some really great records available through uh, their free databases online through, uh, you know, their, 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 their uh, portals. Uh, Poland, the Polish State Archives, is starting a big project, and there are also other databases uh, for Polish records that you can you can search. Uh, uh, if you go back to JewishGen.org and, and the, the Jewish Record Indexing for Poland, the JRI Poland project is is growing constantly. And so, uh, and then you'll find a lot of the Czech archives. There are some individual archives 
uh, regional and and uh, you know Prague City Archives and so forth, you'll find a lot of these uh, coming online through their own databases or their own sort of uh, platform to to bring it. So uh, if you're doing Czech Republic research, you have a few different places you can check for online records. Now that being said, again, it's not every single archive, it's not every single record group. Uh, it's growing and it's getting better. But again, as you know, as things develop, hopefully we'll see more and more records. Uh, for Slovakia, they still have to rely mostly on family search. So whatever digital collections are in there. That's what I can find. Uh, the Slovak archives don't—they do not have a portal uh, on their own to uh, to uh, put the records up online yet. So, again, it really depends on on the area. But your you know, family searches is definitely the place I would recommend that people begin. Uh, you, you will find uh, again, depending on some of the other countries, you may find individual databases as well. Uh, and we do uh, in in the, the book. I do have a whole section on uh, web websites and uh, you know how to um, find some digitized records and and publications online. Okay, I'm smiling as you talked about the uh, Czech Republic archives. So I a couple of years ago started to do some research here when I was in Salt Lake City, uh, which is where I am right now, and discovered that. The archives, uh, actually, a, a lot of the records from the district where my ancestors were, my Lamache ancestors, had not been digitized or, or microfilmed yet, and that the archives was one of the ones that also had not digitized anything. So I'm, it's a, a little bit of frustration in addition to um, feeling challenged in doing my uh my bohemian research, which leads me to my next question, challenges uh, with Eastern European research. Obviously, the language. What language or languages do we need to know or at least be able to pick out some words uh, in the records that we're looking at? And again, it depends on where your ancestors were and what time period. So you could find them in Hungarian. You could find them in German. You can find them in Czech. You could find them in Latin. You could find them in Russian. So you you might need to know the Cyrillic alphabet. Uh, you you would find them in many many different languages. Uh, so uh, and 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 then that can be a challenge. Um, one thing, you know, I find that the more I work with records, I can start recognizing common words and things that I need to know, uh, you know, to, to look for when I'm looking at records. I, one of my biggest regrets is that I did not learn to speak or write Slovak. Uh, I really wish my parents would have pushed that, but they, they didn't. Uh, my, my parents could read and write Slovak. Um, I, you know, I've learned, I've picked up through the years, know how to, to spot the the keywords I know for you know to find for vital records and and other records that I'm looking at but I'm not fluent by any means now you know you don't necessarily you know, if you can take a language class and you can learn that that's wonderful uh, but there are some really great helps out there there are a lot of online dictionaries family search has some wonderful word lists where you can uh, go go to the family search wiki and go to the country and then go down to the languages section and click on the word list. Uh, so they'll have common 
words that you can that, that can help you. Uh, there are online tools, things like Google Translate, and that can help you with keywords and phrases. But you have to be careful with Google Translate. Uh, it doesn't sometimes pick up the regional dialects or the you know the old languages, the old versions of words. So sometimes that can trip you up. But it is a good place to kind of start to kind of get an idea. Uh, I always recommend if you're you're having you know, difficulty reading or translating to you know hire a translator. Uh, find somebody that can that can actually read the documents and and help you. And I've done that on many occasions. Uh, and and generally you can you know you can find them through uh, ethnic genealogical societies. Sometimes uh, you can find them you know, on Facebook. There are a lot of Facebook groups now uh, where you will have. Uh, ethnic-specific groups. So there's Hungarian group, there's uh, Polish-Czech uh, Slovak group, there's, uh, you know, there, there's, I know there's, there's several Jewish groups on, on Facebook. And so you can, people have been posting uh, documents or pictures of tombstones or other things and said, you know, hey, can anybody help me decipher this? And you may have an answer within minutes because you may have somebody that's actually living in Poland or the Czech Republic uh, that can that, that reads and, and, and writes and, and will help you. Uh, you know, that being said, I, you know, I do think there is a benefit to learning how to recognize the words yourself and, and doing the, 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 the work yourself. Uh, so, uh, but, it, but it's nice to know that there are these resources out there to, to help us with the language issues. Okay, and what languages have you taught yourself to read? Mostly Slovak and Hungarian, um, because those are the the languages of the the, the records. Of course, Latin. Uh, I took a little bit of Latin in high school, so I do remember some of the the Latin terms. Uh, and then uh, again, using the the word list, I can recognize uh, a, a lot of the uh, the terms when I go through. Um, any of the records that might be in Latin. So those are probably the three for myself that I that I know. Okay. All right. And then uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, research before we, we talk about writing? Uh, and, and also uh, we're going to find out how we can purchase the book. Well, in terms of research, I, I think a couple of things. One is I really can't stress enough, especially to those just starting out, don't be so anxious to jump across the ocean. Uh, you really do have to get all of those North American documents. And, 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 it, and, and it may be you have to actually, you know, either write to, you know, a local a registrar's office or a vital records office, or you might have to travel there or hire somebody. Uh, you have to maybe track down these fraternal applications. Uh, maybe, you know, you have to scour old newspapers. But don't skip those steps because you really do need to get that ancestral village. And you want to make sure that you're tracing the right family line, like you said, one of your family names is you know, can be like a Smith or a Jones, and I found that in one of my family lines. So you really need to make sure you're you have all the information from here that you can possibly get in North America first. Then go over and and 
start seeking out those other records. The other thing about research, another thing I can highly recommend is if you have a chance to go to the, your ancestral homeland and the villages uh, and visit, that, that is one of the best things you can possibly do. I've gone twice to Slovakia. I visited all four of my ancestral villages, and I've connected with cousins that I didn't even know existed. Uh, and I was able to go and sit in the priest's dining room and look at the old church books, and I was able to go to the registrar's office and, and do research in person and actually walk in my ancestors' footsteps. And if you can afford to do it and you can set this time aside, it is worth every single penny to do that, and I highly recommend it. I, I never felt like a real genealogist until I did that, until I went to my ancestral villages. And so that's another experience I would highly recommend. And the third thing is don't be afraid to ask for help. Uh, I, I, I try to recommend people and do as much of the North American research as you possibly can and as your circumstances allow. So, you know, if you can do your own research through family search, through ancestry, through other, other databases, through traveling to different locations and getting the record. I, I highly recommend that. And then save your pennies. But if you have to hire somebody over in Europe, I would recommend doing that because they know the language, they know the archives, and they know exactly where to go for records. In fact, I, I recently had to call upon my Slovak researcher to get me some documents that were located in a civil registry office and it was worth my my expense to hire him he he prepares everything and he gets it for me and I pay him through PayPal and it's just it would take me months and months and months to figure out how to do this and so uh, it's just easier for me to save my pennies and when I really need it rely on somebody based in, in in Europe to, to do that. I've also hired translators to translate you know, big documents that I that I you know can't really do myself. And so I I don't I think it's you know I, I think it's okay to ask for help uh, when you need it. And 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 that's why you know that's why I really great that we have so much ability to connect with people around the world now because uh, you, you never know who can help you. And and I just find that you know. We tend to think we can, we we should be able to just do it all ourselves, and and I think there are instances where asking for help is okay. So uh, that that's my other recommendation for for research, and to never give up, because when I started twenty six years ago, my my record ability to get records was very limited, and then the record sets started opening up, and more and more records were being filmed or then digitized by family search and then more and more access is being granted and so I would find records or I would be able to connect with cousins or you know I can take a DNA test now and get into a, a regional Slovakia database where my my you know my uncle's DNA sample is there and my dad's DNA sample is there and, my, and, and I can connect with people. So it's, it's just amazing. So never give up. Uh, if, you, if you have those you know, brick walls or those research obstacles, just know that the answer is out there somewhere. 
I am so excited to start on my Bohemian research, Lisa. <laughs> I, I, I have a lot of other things I have to get done, but but uh, I, I'm I'm excited. So, how can we purchase the book? Uh, so the best way to do that is, um, I, I, I believe I gave you a link for your show, so you can uh, mm-hmm. use that link. Um, it's available at shopfamilytree.com and as well. Um, it's also on Amazon. Uh, if you're an Amazon user, you can certainly go to Amazon and, and purchase it as well. Uh, so there are you know, different ways that, uh, that you can purchase it, but mostly uh, either through shopfamilytree.com or Amazon. Okay. All right. And then, as you said, I do have the link on the blog talk page. So please uh, take advantage of that as well. Um, So we are going to take a very brief break. And then when we come back, uh, I have a few more questions about Lisa's uh, European Eastern European ancestry uh, and and how we can how we can take our lines back. And then uh, we're going to be talking about some writing. And uh, so we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We are going to be back on the first Wednesday in February. That's February 1st at 10 o'clock in the morning, our usual time, Eastern time. The uh, show is going to be focused on Sir William Johnson, Molly Brandt, and the Mohawk Valley during the Revolutionary War. Uh, it's a, a fascinating topic. Uh, Sir William uh, Johnson was the uh, Indian agent uh, in the colonial New York. Molly Brandt was his Mohawk wife, common law wife. And the Mohawk Valley was uh, had a lot of tension and strife during the American Revolution um, because of all of these different factors with the uh, Dutch and the Palatine and the English settlers there. So my guest is going to be Michael Perzini. He is the senior interpreter for Johnson Hall State Historic Site in Johnstown. Uh, and I visited there a couple of weeks ago, and just a fascinating topic. So that's going to be uh, Wednesday, February 1st. That's our New York show. And then on uh, Wednesday, February 15th, I'm going to be interviewing Angela Walton Raji, and uh, we're going to be talking about freedmen of the five civilized tribes. And this is a follow-up to uh, what I did with the Fogarty's a a couple of months ago in terms of focusing on the five civilized tribes and uh, research uh, from uh, Oklahoma and then going back into southeastern uh, United States. So we're picking up now on the African-Americans who were enslaved by the five civilized tribes and who also walked the Trail of Tears uh, from southeastern uh, United States to Oklahoma with these tribes. So we're focusing on the the African-Americans, the freedmen of the five civilized tribes. So that uh, will be 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern time, again, on February 15th. And if you have any questions for our upcoming guests, if you had feedback for the show or ideas for... So today, uh, talking about Eastern Europe, uh, Lisa, 
in general, and I know this, this may depend on, on what group we're research, researching, how far back in time can we take our average European line? Well, again, it depends on the locality. For me personally, I've gone back to about the early 1700s. Uh, that's where the church records are in, in my areas. Uh, if you're going uh, into the Czech Republic, you, know, you, might, you may be able to go back to the 1600s. Uh, some of the other areas may go back you know, that far as well. So it really, you know, it really depends on the surviving records and, and you know, when the, the record keeping started. But for me personally, it's, it's about early 1700s is, is where sort of the record stop, the paper trail stops for my ancestors. Okay. And, and how far did you take your also line back? Uh, again, uh, about mid 1700s. Okay. All right. And is that, is that the Slovak or is that the Carth uh, uh, Rusin? Uh, Slovak. That's the Slovak. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so then your mom's line is the, the Carth uh, Rusin? Right. My maternal grandfather is, is the Rusin. Uh, Line, correct. And, and again, uh, oh. I, I have records from the church going back to, uh, it was uh, about the early 1700s. Okay, all right. And then how much of their stories have you been able to find, put, putting them into their historical context and finding out about their lives? I've, I've done quite a bit of, of that. And again, uh, my trips over to the ancestral villages really helped to solidify that and, and get more of the historical context and the information and especially meeting with relatives that I didn't know I had. For example, I met with a, a cousin on my um, Alva side of the family whose mother was my, my grandfather's uh, sister and she stayed in Slovakia and, and, and this woman just was a wealth of knowledge about uh, the daily life and the circumstances and so forth. And so I was able to get information, you know, that way uh, and, and, and just, you know, really just doing a lot of historical reading and just, you know, understanding the, you know, the day-to-day -day life and then actually going there and, and seeing, uh, you know, where they lived and, 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 and getting in a sense of, of what it was like. And, and I, I remember being in Slovakia in 2012 and being in Westernia, which is my grandfather's, the Rusin village. And it's, it's not an easy place to get to, um, you know, very, it's in the Carpathian mountains and it's, it's even, even today by car, it's you know, not easy to get to. But I just remember one morning thinking, how did my grandfather get from this point to you know Duquesne, Pennsylvania and all the things that that transpired in his life and it was just it was just very eye opening for me. So I've tried to explore some of that through through my writing and, and you know I, I, I think it's it's really important to go beyond the names, dates and places and, and, and get an appreciation for you know, your ethnic heritage and, and the other historical and social aspects that, that influence, you know, our ancestors' lives. I, I just, I, I think it's important to, to study that social history. 
Okay. All right. And uh, you mentioned to me a couple of months ago that you're creating a new course on Eastern European research. Uh, is, is that still going to be coming out in 2017? Uh, we don't have an exact date yet. It's through the National Institute for Genealogical Studies um, of Canada. And uh, so uh, I've been preparing a series of of courses uh, for an Eastern European research certificate. Uh, we're finishing up the, you know, the final courses now. Uh, I, I'm working on those now. I don't have a launch date, but we're getting we're getting closer to to having those done. So uh, if you go to the National Institute for Genealogical Studies, uh, you'll be able to uh, find out when that will be released. Um, you can keep following, uh, you know, their their website, and and they will have information as it as it becomes available. Okay, terrific. All right. So then let's talk about writing. Now you also uh, do a, an intense uh, intensive writing course. Uh, tell us about that. Yes. Uh, for the past past couple of years, I've uh, partnered with Thomas McKenty uh, through his uh, business Hack Genealogy. Uh, dot com and we've offered uh, not only we've offered genealogy boot camps where we've done uh, you know occasional webinars full day webinars on different topics but I also uh, started a genealogy writing intensive uh, called the right stuff and it's about you know learning to creatively write about your ancestors and you know taking these facts that we gather and and turning them into interesting stories. So it's a six-week course, and we, we've, we've tended to offer it uh, once in the fall, starting around October, and then once again starting in January. So we're currently uh, going through a session right now. And basically what it is is it's uh, a six-week course that has uh, three live meetings through GoToWebinar, and it has uh, – a Facebook group, a private Facebook group, where all the interaction takes place and the assignments are submitted. And uh, there are some pre-recorded videos uh, on writing instruction that I've done. And then uh, there are five assignments uh, that will, you know, build your family history writing skills from planning out what you're going to write all the way through to a uh, you know a, a narrative that you prepare uh, it's, it's a short narrative but it gets you into the the creative writing process and so uh, we do this as I said uh, usually uh, once starting in January and once in in the fall so uh, you can watch my website lisaalza.com or uh, my blog which is theaccidentalgenealogist.com and I uh, I will post uh, information on uh, you know when the next uh, next course will be available, and I'm also currently working on a part two for this course that will uh, expand your writing skills and 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 do more creative writing. So uh, that you can watch for information on that as well through my website or my blog. Okay, and I want to mention the link to Lisa's website is on the Blog Talk page, so you can just click on that if you're listening on Blog Talk. And so our uh, tips for aspiring family history writers? Well, one thing I find is, first of all, don't be intimidated. 
you just have to start writing. And, and one of the things I, I find, and a lot of, a lot of uh, students in my classes will say, but I'm not done with my research yet. And I'll say, well, guess what? You're probably never going to be done with your research. So you need to, you need to just kind of sit down and, and pick a family line or pick an ancestor and really just, you know, start writing their story. You know, take what you have so far and just start writing something. Um, I always say you can't edit a blank page. And so once you have something down, you can go back in and if you have a missing birth date or you have something that you, you need to research it, just make a note of it and come back to it and then go back and, and cite it and, and, and do all that work. But I, I find that people get bogged down in the, the thought of, I want to write this book, but they don't actually do the writing. So that's what, that's what I try to teach in my classes. You just have to start somewhere. And you have to understand that it won't be perfect the first time out. That's why we have the revision process. And so you, you, you just have to, you have to just sit down and, and start. And that's, and, and, and that's probably the biggest thing. People just don't know how or where to start. Okay. All right. And then uh, what are some of your writing projects uh, that you're doing, uh, articles coming out, uh, any books uh, coming out? Uh, yes, I've been doing some articles. Uh, I, write, I write for Family Tree Magazine. I write for Internet Genealogy Magazine and Your Genealogy Today. And I, uh, I have uh, recently that actually just came out, which I, I was excited about, uh, Internet Genealogy does their Tracing Your Ancestors series. And uh, I had already done a couple of years ago, I worked on a, a Tracing Your Eastern European Ancestors magazine for them. But just uh, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the new issue was released, and it was on organizing your genealogy research. And I worked with uh, Denise Levenick, who is uh, the family curator, and we co-wrote this uh, special issue on organizing. And so it has tips on organizing data and photos and, and even writing tips. I, I put a few writing tips articles in, in there. Uh, so that's that's recent. That is uh, through Internet Genealogy Magazine. And then uh, some, some projects that I'm working on, of course, the courses for the National Institute. Uh, in terms of, of new book projects, I have a few ideas that I've started, and I, I'm working on them, but uh, I'm just uh, not at the point where I I'm, can talk about them yet. Uh, but but I do I do have a, a quite a few projects on my plate to keep me me busy for the next year or so. So I'm I'm really fortunate in that I get to combine my two loves of writing and genealogy. Okay. And then how about webinars? Where can we find some of your webinars? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, so I have a Legacy Family Tree webinars. Uh, I'll be doing uh, two in uh, 2017. I believe the first one is in April. And so you can go to the Legacy uh, Family Tree webinar page, familytreewebinars.com. Uh, I do uh, occasional webinars for different societies. I have one coming up for the Illinois State Genealogical Society in May. Uh, and I also uh, usually will, will post a list of, of my speaking engagements on uh, my uh, blog or my website. Uh, but I, you know, I, I tend to be doing uh, quite a few uh, societies and, and things throughout the, the coming year. 
Uh, I will also be at Roots Tech coming up in February uh, in Salt Lake City, and uh, I will be uh, at some of the other conferences throughout the year. So, again, you can always uh, find out more uh, through my blog or my website. I also have a newsletter that you can sign up, and, and I uh, that's right on my uh, website as well. Okay. All right. Before I last, ask my last question about your own ancestry, is there anything you would like to add in closing? Well, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to talk about Eastern European genealogical research. Uh, I tend to you know, think that we don't get to talk about it enough, and there there are so many of us out there doing it. And uh, I, you know, I've I've learned so much from from so many of my colleagues uh, that I work with, uh, some of whom uh, helped with the book, uh, in particular uh, Jonathan Shea, who did a lot of the, the Polish language and, and uh, records uh, work for helping me with that. Uh, I've, I have two wonderful researchers in uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia, Jan Eber for Czech Republic and Michael Razus for Slovakia, who were you know, invaluable to me, uh, you know, helping me uh, with, you know, preparing a lot of the sections for the book. And so, uh, you know, I, I really, I'm really grateful to you for letting me come on and talk about Eastern European research in general and um, you know, about the book and about writing. And, you know, I just, I just think it's, it's an exciting time to be a genealogist in general, but especially for those of us uh, who have been trying to track down our Polish, our Czech, our Slovak, our Russian, our Ukrainian ancestors, and just haven't, you know, been able to to do that. Uh, you know, even just 20 years ago, it was it was a lot more difficult. And so now, with the internet and social media and DNA testing and all the wonderful tools that we have at our disposal, I just think it's really an exciting time to be a genealogist, and I'm I'm just really happy to be a part of it. Yeah, I am too, and 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 uh, I and I had my mom's cousin tested Y DNA so for my Bohemian line. So DNA too is is coming in and, and offering uh, some exciting research. Uh, actually, uh, I'm I'm blanking on the word I want. It's it's not the be all and end all. It's it's enhancing and, and uh, helping with our regular genealogy research. So Lisa. Uh, We've, you've mentioned your ancestry. When did your ancestors come from Eastern Europe to the United States? Well, it's interesting that my ancestors were late immigrants, uh, more or less. Uh, so, again, this is the wonderful thing about genealogy. When you start digging and you find things that you didn't know or that you thought you knew, but then you find out differently. My grandparents came. They all came separately, but my Dad's parents came, uh, my grandfather came in 1910, and my grandmother came in 1914. Uh, They were married here in the United States. Then my mother's parents, again, my grandfather came in 1921, and my grandmother came in 1922. Again, they were married here in the United States. But I thought, you know, that they were the only immigrants that had come over at that time. And as I did my research, I found that uh, my great-grandfathers 
uh, two of my great-grandfathers were birds of passage, which meant that they came over to the United States for a while, and they worked and earned money, and then they went back to Slovakia and were able to purchase land. And so they uh, then they stayed there permanently in Slovakia, and they, they died in Slovakia, but it wasn't until, you know, I did some, some really in-depth research, and then actually when I had gone over there and met my family members and learned about my great-grandfather's doing this that, you know, I, I was surprised to learn that they were here uh, late 1890s, early 1900s. And so I, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting discovery for me to discover that, that, that those ancestors came over too. And, uh, but yes, my, my grandparents were, were later immigrants. Huh, very interesting. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that in terms of my own research as well. Uh, so is there any one ancestor who has called out to you? Oh, I think there's been a couple. Um, but for one, number one, um, my, my paternal grandfather really, really interests me. And the reason is, is I didn't know him. He died before I was even born. And, you know, I, I had to learn about him, you know, through talking to family members and by doing the research. And then when I went to his village and I met my cousins, when I met my family, uh, my Alzo family, and then uh, I met one of the interesting things is my, my paternal grandfather had a younger brother. And the two of them had never met because my grandfather left for America and my grandfather's brother was born after my grandfather was in America. And uh, in, uh, in uh, 2008, I got an email out of the blue from the granddaughter of this brother. And she had said that, you know, she had found me because I had written an article about my grandfather for Internet Genealogy uh, magazine. And she Googled the Alzo name and she came up with my website and she so she reached out to me and then we discovered oh yes we're connected and then I met up with her in uh, Slovakia when I went in 2010 and then she took me to my grandfather's village and introduced me to all my relatives and so I re we really think that our grandfathers were kind of working together up there trying to bring us together and I think that was the the best experience. Um, I've had some other female ancestors uh, calling out to me. Um, one of my grandmother's sisters had a, uh, you know, had a, uh, she died of tuberculosis and she had a kind of a tragic life. And I, I you know, I, I always find myself drawn to her uh, for some reason. And, and so at different periods of time, different ancestors call to me. Uh, but but uh, I think my I think my paternal grandfather has had sort of the the most influence in the last several years. Okay, very nice, very nice. So Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. I have learned a lot, and as I said, I am so psyched <laughs> to to get into my Bohemians. Uh, and and thank you for sharing your expertise and and telling us about uh, writing. And and uh, for my listeners, please do take advantage of uh, Lisa's writing courses for your own family history. So thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Jane, and, and good luck, everyone, with your research. <laughs> All right. This is the uh, Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day.